0: We welcome you to the NACMA Podcast. Join us by listening to each episode full of interesting topics from industry leaders in college athletics. There will be a wide range of topics, each one focusing on what we in college athletics deal with on a daily basis, revenue generation, brand management, and the fan experience.
1: Welcome to the WashU Athletics Podcast, home of Scholar Champions. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Anthony Asma, the John M. Shell Director of Athletics at Washington University in St. Louis, better known as WashU. I'm thrilled to welcome my guest, Dr. Tim Bono. Tim is a professor at WashU who has won several teaching awards and offers one of the most popular courses on campus focusing on the psychology of young adults and the science of happiness. He is an expert consultant on psychological health and happiness for a number of national media outlets, including CNN, Fast Company, The Associated Press, and several public radio stations. He is the author of Happiness 101, Simple Secrets to Smart Living and Well-Being. During our conversation, Tim and I discussed the unique challenges facing intercollegiate athletics administrators, coaches and student athletes and expand upon what it requires to maintain a positive mindset while facing adversity. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And remember, positivity is a mindset. Hey, Tim, thanks for taking the time to uh Join us for this podcast representing Washington University in St. Louis.
0: It's my pleasure. Happy to be with you today, Anthony.
1: Tim, during our conversation, I know we will be taking a closer look at four main topics, including mindset and resilience, strategies, social connection, and meditation. Before we get into our first topic, will you please share with us a little bit about your background?
0: Sure, I'd be happy to do so. So I... Um, In addition to being a staff member at Washington University, I am also a proud alumnus. I started my freshman year of college in 2001. Um, I completed my four years of undergrad, which was then followed by five years in a PhD program in psychology. And during that time, I had an internship with the Office of Residential Life, and I became interested in what predicted happiness and well-being among our students. And I started to collect some data on that. And one thing led to another. It turned into the topic of my dissertation, and I was fortunate enough to be offered a position upon finishing graduate school to teach some undergraduate courses in our psychology department and also take my statistics acumen and develop some programs around assessment and student affairs. And that has merged into the work that I do right now, which I think uh, both of those inform each other, where we are essentially collecting data to understand how can we improve the student experience in ways that ultimately strengthens the health and well being of the students in our community? You
1: are known for your work in positivity. How did you first develop a professional purpose around this topic, and why is it important for individuals to practice
0: the art of positivity? Well, as I mentioned, a lot of this started when I was in grad school, and I had that curiosity about what was predicting the health and well being of our students. And I was uh, also very fortunate to have a really wonderful advisor in graduate school who drew my attention to the fact that this was not just something I was doing on the side, my internship in residential life. But in fact, there was an entire field called positive psychology that was dedicated to the scientific understanding of well-being. And I remember when he first told me about that, I said, Positive psychology. What the heck is that? And he said, Well, let me show you. And he kind of opened a door. So that's always a piece of advice I give to my own students. Surround yourself with good mentors because often they will help you see things that you might not have seen for yourself. So that's how I developed a professional interest in this topic. And it's something that I personally have taken to heart and um, tried to incorporate into my own life and encourage my family and friends to do the same. And to answer your second question, Anthony, about why is it important for individuals to practice the art of positivity? One of the things we know about human emotion is that our emotions are asymmetrical and that we seem to be hardwired to give more attention to negative information than to positive information. And a great example of that, I think, is how contentious the most recent political climate was um, running up to our election where most of the ads were targeting Um, how bad the other person was versus ads building up the person who was actually sponsoring that ad. And it's because it works. People are much more sensitive to negative information. Um, And that's something that we have to consider in the interest of building up our own mental health is that our mind is well-practiced at rehearsing and rehashing all the negative information in the world and it is less practiced at giving in, at giving attention to the many good things happening in the world around us, and that's why things like gratitude are so important, because the practice of gratitude is not actually about going out and creating more good things or making more good things happen. It's simply directing our attention to those good things that already exist that provide the potential for happiness and joy and meaning and purpose, but that we may simply have lost sight of because they're so easy to take for granted. And the practice of positivity is like any other skill that we practice. How do you get better at basketball or tennis or soccer? You don't just show up on game day and expect that you're going to score the winning goal. You practice those skills and mindset. We can consider the same thing, like trying to sink that jump shot, or uh, you you can tell I'm not an athlete here, but you know, whatever the tennis players or whatever do to get it just right, (laughs) Right. you know, you practice those skills and you get better at them. We can apply the same philosophy to positive thinking um, and to the practice of gratitude. When we appreciate good things in the world, those good things appreciate. We get more out of them. By practicing that skill, same
1: thing as sports—repetition, right? Uh, muscle memory. It's a great point, Tim. Tim, as you know, we have faced a global crisis with COVID nineteen, as well as a crisis with racial injustice. Talk to us a little bit about a few ways leaders can approach challenging spaces with a positive mindset.
0: Yeah, it's it's a great question, and it's one that I've been getting a lot lately when people find out that I teach and do research on positive psychology, they often say, all right, happiness guy, what do you have to say about that during a global <laughs> pandemic? And I, I I put a word of caution out there to say that one of the things that we know about mental health and well-being um, is that there are a lot of myths about the pursuit of happiness. And one of them is this idea that we're supposed to be happy all the time. And some people think that if we're not happy all the time, that, missed, that must mean that something is wrong with them. But Any psychologist will tell you that if you were happy all the time, that would be the indication that something were wrong with you. We humans have evolved an incredibly complex set of emotions for a reason, and there's a time and a place for all of them. We're not supposed to be happy all the time. And this is one of those times where there's so many stressors and so many difficulties that we're all having to figure out how to overcome, that if we do try to be happy in a situation where happiness is not warranted, that could actually backfire. So I think that, again, in the interest of our, our mental health right now, we have to carve out the time and the space to face the stress and the sadness and the anxiety, the grief, the sense of loss of what we're missing this year. And athletes know that better than anybody right now, given that a very important part of their identity has been taken away from them for at least this fall. Um, So I think that when we're talking about building a positive mindset, that doesn't mean that we should be ignoring the very difficult and challenging negative emotions that are inevitable right now. Um, but it's also not to say that it's an either-or proposition. Once we've built that space to process that anxiety, and I think that coaches can, can model this. And when they're talking to their team, say, I'm also upset. Here are my fears. Here are my anxieties. Giving other people the opportunity to build community around that shared sense of loss— And then say, all right, but we haven't lost everything. Let's take a look at some of the things that we still have. We still have our community. We're not able to do the things that we wanted to. We're not able to travel together. We're not able to play the games or compete at the level that we wanted to or expected to this year. But there are still ways we can have a community. There are still ways, perhaps, that we can engage in this sport that we love so much within the parameters that have been outlined by our public health officials. So, still finding some way to recreate in some way those opportunities that are missed, even if it's not quite as good, it can still be a a proxy for it. Um, And that can help to build that positive mindset to acknowledge the loss, but say, but what are some of the things that that we can still recreate, even if it's not as good, you know, it still gives us some opportunity um, to come together and and, um, have a meaningful experience. Really great points, Tim. In your work,
1: A positive mindset is often tied to the idea of being resilient.
0: How are mindset and resiliency correlated? Yeah, there's certainly a strong correlation between them. Uh, Because, as I've alluded to earlier, this idea of mental health and psychological health is not about being happy all the time. A really important part of psychological health has to do with knowing how to overcome adversity. It's about acknowledging that stress and anxiety and despair are simply par for the course. So when you look at the happiest people... None of them are happy all the time. What seems to characterize the happiest people is that when they face difficult times, instead of responding with indignance or a sense of, I can't believe I'm going through this or I have to deal with this thing right now, um, they're disappointed, they're upset about it, but they take it in stride and they seem to have strategies at hand that enable them to cope effectively with that so that they can minimize the impact of that negativity and get back. On the, on the path toward a sense of happiness and well-being. Um, and that, again, is, is one of the important things about um, that mindset of resilience. Um, it's not that we've identified superhuman people who are walking around who are immune to the effects of adversity, but again, it's when adversity strikes, it's in the ways that they respond to it that seems to figure prominently into their overall sense of well-being. Because the reality is that as difficult as this year has been, this is not the last time for any of us that we will have to face loss, disappointment, frustration, anxiety, or sadness. And it's really important for us to know how to Um, To persevere even amid all of those challenges, because that's another life skill that we're going to have to keep drawing on. And this, I think, for many of us is prompting us to refine that skill set as difficult as it is, uh, because it's a skill set that's going to come in handy the next time we have to face loss or challenge um, or other forms of distress. Tim, in the current landscape, leaders at every
1: level may be facing a series of major decisions every day. And in a recent survey administered by NACMA, 48% of the survey respondents indicated that they had had new responsibilities added to their plate since March. What are some strategies you recommend for beginning each
0: day from a grounded space? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think that uh, almost everybody, or many people anyway, um, are realizing that there was a line on their contract that said other duties as assigned. And (laughs) that is now coming to the the, the forefront. (laughs) Um, you know, I think that when it comes to how we take that one day at a time, I think that that itself is an important phrase for us to keep in mind. And I think that there's value at the end of each day, or maybe at the start of each day to take a look at what the next set of tasks are going to be and to take a moment to identify what some of the most challenging parts of that day might be, or what some of the most challenging tasks might be, and to plan ahead and think, If I run into difficulty, if I find myself in a situation where I don't know what to do, what will I do? What is a resource I could draw on? Who is a person I could reach out to to ask for some assistance? Because one of the things we know about stress and anxiety is that um, when we're experiencing stress and anxiety any given moment, um, that negativity can sort of hijack our cognitive system and undermine our capacity for good judgment and decision-making. But if we have thought about it on the front end when we're not experiencing the anxiety more um, as a preemptive strike, so to speak, or or at least uh, uh, if if we've taken the proper precautions to plan ahead um, when we are in that clear space, then when we face the anxiety or we're not sure what to do, we'll say, wait a second, Earlier this morning, I thought about who I might call if I didn't know what to do here. I'm going to call that person. And you sort of have that in your back pocket, kind of going back to that idea of those coping strategies. Um, And the other thing that kind of comes to mind here as we're talking about this, there's a, a quote that I love from the great Maya Angelou who once said, forgiveness is the greatest gift you can ever give And I truly believe that that starts with self-forgiveness and self-compassion. That's another skill that I think we all have to incorporate right now, that inevitably there are days when we're not going to be at our best. There are days when we're going to make mistakes. There are going to be days when we're not motivated and knowing how to forgive ourselves and not let the regret from that um, take over, because all that's going to do is prevent us from bringing our best selves to our work the next day. Um, But saying, all right, if I made a mistake, here's how I'm going to shore it up, especially if it affected other people. But I'm going to forgive myself for that and focus on doing as, as good a job as I possibly can on the set of tasks awaiting me tomorrow.
1: Tim, you bring up a great point because when leaders think about grace, they think about giving it to others versus really giving it to themselves because, you know, leaders are the last to provide self-care and grace, right? And so you bring up a really good point as well as how we show up uh, in the people that we get a chance to work
0: with. And uh, I think they appreciate us being authentic and being real. It's true. I I agree with you there. And I think that When leaders model that for themselves and own their mistakes and own their sadness and own their distress at a time like this, it gives other people um, permission in a way to do the same. And I think that that's how cultures are affected in ways that are ultimately positive in the end.
1: Tim, it's so important that you say that because in sports, the term vulnerability uh, is not necessarily a welcome term, especially when you think about leadership in sports, but during this time, being vulnerable is, uh, is very critical.
0: Yeah, and it's difficult to do that because it's the nature of being vulnerable that you are potentially exposing yourself to more risk or to more harm. But if we are doing that in a context um, of, of a caring community, it's also an opportunity to become even closer with that community and to strengthen the bonds that exist by revealing our humanity with those that we care about. So, yeah, it is a risky endeavor, um, but it often has payouts that make it worth it.
1: Tim, can you share with us any other strategies you recommend that influence a positive mindset?
0: Certainly. There's a number of strategies that are useful really at any time to boost our overall psychological health and well-being, but they become, I think, especially relevant when we're going through a tough time or facing adversity. Um, And I I mentioned the practice of gratitude, and the reason why that is so effective is because it's directing our attention to good things in our lives that we may have simply um, lost sight of. Um, Another strategy that's very effective is pro-social behavior, finding some ways that we can strengthen our communities, thinking of someone else who needs help. Um, So if you're a student and you're feeling down, um, maybe find another student who's also having a a bad day and see if you can cheer them up in some way. Find someone who you can read an essay for their class and offer them some guidance. If, If writing is your forte, find a student who struggles with that and see if you can help them. Doing whatever you can to feel a sense of connection to something bigger than yourself, um, a feeling that you are contributing in something um, to some system or some community that's going to outlast you, that sense of connection is also really important um, for our own well-being and Part of the reason why it's so effective for well-being is because it's another strategy that's redirecting attention away from our own internal problems as individuals and helps us see the bigger picture, that we are part of something larger and we still have the ability to contribute. Um, There are three core components in positive psychology that we've identified as being especially effective at boosting well-being, and those are a sense of competence, a sense of autonomy, and a sense of relatedness. Um, any behaviors that we can do that boost one or more of those three goes a long way toward our psychological health competence is all about achieving things having to work really hard at something and then feeling that sense of of gratification knowing how hard we've worked and that it's led to some result autonomy is behaviors that are freely chosen that align with our life purpose or some mission that we're not doing this well because you know i took a positive psych class and he said keep a gratitude journal i guess i'll do that but instead saying no i'm going to do this because i think it's important and i and i want to do it that autonomy is important and then third and arguably most important is the sense of relatedness feeling connected to other people so any behaviors we can do that that capitalize on those competence autonomy relatedness pro-social behavior gratitude is important Um, getting a good night's sleep exercise on a regular basis those also um, have the opportunity to tap into those three characteristics
1: Tim, speaking of connection, we have always known that college athletics is centered around connection. COVID-19 and the distancing aspects of the pandemic has even further emphasized the need student athletes, coaches, staff, parents, and more have for connection. First, talk to me a little bit about the importance of connection. And then my follow-up question would be, what are some recommendations you have for social connection? either ways to interact in person with the appropriate guidelines in place or virtually?
0: Yeah, it's a really important question, Anthony, because arguably the single strongest predictor of our well-being is the strength of connection that we feel with other people. Uh, When psychologists have looked at this, they find pretty consistently that the happiest people all have at least one thing in common, which is that they have rich and satisfying social connections. And that in some ways presents... Um, the sad irony um, and the devastating irony in some ways of the pandemic is that when when humans experience times of crisis, we kind of become like social magnets. You know, if you look at the aftermath of 9-11 or wars or other times when people were in distress, people come together. They want to share space. They want to hug each other and be there to comfort each other. And now we're in a situation where we have this desire to do that and we're being told not only can't we do it but it would be actually dangerous for us to do that which only intensifies that loneliness and that that yearning to be with other people and so here again we are pressed to find opportunities to recreate that in whatever ways that we can so first of all we have to acknowledge that the alternatives even though some are very good are not going to be as good as physically occupying close personal space with other people and so we have to acknowledge that loss but there's also opportunities to recreate that to an extent and that's where finding opportunities to come together um using whatever platforms are available to us using zoom having virtual happy hours even though people are experiencing zoom fatigue it still is important in whatever ways we can to be checking in with people to hear their voice to see them when it's possible even if it's on a screen acknowledging that yeah this isn't what we want it to be but hopefully this is temporary you know this isn't going to last forever there will be a time when when we are able to be in the same physical space but for the time being we we have to sort of make some concessions here, but I, I also think though that in some ways this has almost given people permission to connect in ways that we might not have previously. Um, you know, I am a big proponent of the importance of exercise, and if I have breaks in the middle of my day, um, I've one thing I personally have started to do is instead of u- using that twenty minutes to check email or scroll through my phone or respond to text messages. If, if the sun is shining, I will go outside and go for a walk. And what I've started to do is inst- is when I have the urge to scroll through my phone, to look at emails or Facebook or whatever, I scroll through my list of contacts and I just cold call somebody. And there are a couple of people in particular who I have become much closer to in the last six months because we just call each other and we just talk about random things. I mean, um, a, a very close friend of mine f- from college who, you know, we would like call each other on our birthdays over the last several years but now we we call each other almost once a week um and it's been amazing and and i hope that that will continue even after all this pandemic stuff has has ended um and i think that that those are the kinds of opportunities where because we're all sort of craving that social connection we can just cold call somebody i think i've probably spoken on the phone versus texting or whatever else way more over the last six months than i probably have over the last six years and it's because i'm just calling people more And it it certainly leaves me feeling a lot better about myself, Um, and the and importantly the the connection I have with those people who I've who I've shared that phone conversation with. So that's I think what's important is that um, yeah it's this is another one of those things that is a loss for us, but there are still some ways to recreate it in whatever ways we can, Um, and especially as we head into the winter months when we can't do as much, you know, hang out on the driveway and wave to your neighbors. Um, picking up the phone, having phone calls, you know, doing the Zoom happy hours, um, it's, it's not perfect. But I do think it's important to maintain those connections in whatever ways we can.
1: You know, realizing what we took for granted and, and, and really trying to embrace a, a different approach to, um, you know, connection and engagement. To your point, Tim, does virtual connection have the same type of influence as in-person connection? Can you explain a little bit about
0: this? Yeah, it's a great follow-up question because it seems that for for some of us, this is, you know... As far as we can go is with virtual connection, um, and the short answer is no. It's not as good, but it's it. But it's certainly better than than nothing. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, you know part of this is that it's reminding us how important in person connection is, and I hope that we will all sort of keep this in our collective memories um, when we're on the other side of this to seize every opportunity that we have to spend time um in person with other people. Um I've even noticed this in some of the classes I'm teaching right now like with with some our courses that even among the class, you know, we're not uh, we don't get to know each other quite as well when some of the students are there and others are on Zoom because you know, there's so much of our ability to communicate and connect with another person that is nonverbal, that is simply just occupying the same space and getting the same, a read on the physical energy that a person has, just their body posture, the nuances of facial expression. A lot of that is lost or significantly minimized when you're doing it virtually. Um, so yeah, there th- th- that goes into the category of things we are losing. It's It's a loss, but- there's still an awful lot we can get just from a phone call, just from a Zoom call. And so incorporating that as much as we can, even though it's not as good, um, it's still pretty good. This has been really great practical things that we
1: can put into action right after people listen to this uh, podcast. Our last topic is meditation. Will you share with our listeners your thoughts on meditation? If someone has previously not practiced meditation, what simple actions can they begin with?
0: Yeah, this is also one of my favorite topics to talk about, actually, because I will admit that even early in my professional career, uh, when I was delving into the research in positive psychology, I was a big skeptic about meditation. Um, even when I was developing my positive psychology class, I knew that it was a topic that most positive psychology classes, when they were offered, included meditation meditation. Um, so I brought in a guest speaker like the first three years I taught the class because I knew there was research on it. I knew there were people who practiced it, but in the back of my mind, there was that little voice saying, what is this new age hippie nonsense that's trying to break its way into this science-based field? But once I was actually paying attention to this lecture that my friend was giving to my own students in the class, I thought maybe I should try this out. And I took a more careful look at what the research actually had to say about it. And what I realized is that meditation is not simply about sitting in silence and clearing all thoughts from your mind and i think that's why people are not interested in it because that's what they think it is what i realized is that there are two important things happening during the meditation practice Uh, so inevitably if you sit down for 10 minutes to meditate your mind is going to start to wander as it should that's what the mind does But the two important things that happen during meditation is that you become well-trained, number one, at identifying those distracting thoughts as they enter your mind. And then number two, and what's most important, is that you give yourself practice at redirecting your attention away from the distracting thoughts and back to the focus of your meditation. So usually meditation is just sitting in silence for some period of time and focusing on your breathing, and your mind starts to wander, As it will, as it does, and then you bring it back. And it's the act of bringing your mind back away from the distraction onto the task at hand. That's what you're strengthening. And the reason why meditation is so valuable for our mental health is because... During the day, often what is at the core of anxiety or depression is the fact that our mind will detach from the present moment and get caught up in worry over what's going to happen in the future or rumination over what has happened in the past. And those negative thinking cycles are the fuel for anxiety and depression. And so if we are practiced at giving ourselves even 10 to 20 minutes just sitting in silence, focusing on our breathing, redirecting attention away from distracting thoughts back to the breath that is the same underlying mechanism that becomes strengthened that at other times during the day when we sit down to work on a report that's due tomorrow but then suddenly we get caught up in anxious thoughts or we you know are or, or we're even tempted to to minimize that window and open up instagram and spend time on that instead if we've been meditating our mind is well practiced at identifying That thought is not good for me right now. This activity on social media is not good for me right now. I'm going to redirect my attention back to this report that I'm supposed to be writing. Um, And that is why meditation is so effective. It's not about getting ourselves to stop distracting thoughts because distracting thoughts are going to happen. They they are intrusive. It's about giving our mind more control of our attention and saying, oh, it's another distracting thought. Okay, well, that's what the mind does, but I'm going to redirect, I'm not going to Give that more attention than it deserves. I'm going to bring my attention back to what I'm doing. And sure enough, when you look at the research, people who meditate on a regular basis do show reductions in anxiety and depression, and they show increases in productivity. And it's all stems from that ability to maintain control of their attention in their thought processes and in the emotional reactions that they have to the world around them.
1: That's great, powerful points. Tim, thank you so much for this engaging, insightful uh, conversation on positivity and providing practical ways we can frame our mindsets. As we wrap, will you share with our listeners what you believe is the single most influencer of positivity?
0: Absolutely. You know, if ever there were a softball question to pose to a psychologist, it's that one. I think I alluded to this one earlier, but um, it bears repeating again that hands down, um, there is a consensus that there is simply nothing more important than the strength of connections that we have with other people. so doing whatever we can um, to spend time with others to strengthen um, the bonds we feel, even if it's in a, a virtual setting, keeping that strong um, that is incredibly important for our overall sense of well-being. Um, when you look at the happiest people, they all have rich and satisfying social relationships doing whatever we can to reach out to those, take care of each other, um, and take an interest in their lives. Um, that, if, if we can build in time for authentic connection with other people, um, that is the best way to strengthen our well-being. Tim, thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you for listening to the NACMA Podcast. BE SURE TO VISIT THE ONLINE COMMUNITY AND JOIN NACMA IN CONTINUING THE CONVERSATION.